Hey everyone, it's Evan. Thanks for tuning in to this second bonus episode. Now, these bonus episodes are meant to dig quite deep for those of you who really want to get sucked in. You could sort of think of it like the director's commentary in a movie. If you really like the movie, you can watch what went on behind the scenes. But if you don't really want to get that far in, it's not like you're going to miss any part of the movie. You're not going to miss any of the plot. This is a bonus episode about revision. Because if you're like me, you get this piece of sheet music thrown at you and it's just perfect. It's like a miracle. You wonder, how did this come to be? Did he have early versions? Did he have sketches? Did he redo it a bunch of times? Or was it just perfect? We are lucky enough to have several early versions of Bach's compositions, especially, say, the early versions of Book One of the Well-Tempered Clavier, where he's often adding cadential bars, or in a few cases, even doubling the length of a prelude, or completely adding new sections. Well, in the 1740s, the answer to that question is pretty much it was just perfect. Bach's art was so mature and so developed that often the compositions did not undergo any revision. But there are a few revisions in the Art of Fugue, and to me they are so interesting, I thought they weren't their own episode. Now what we're dealing with in the Art of Fugue is an autograph and an original print. Autograph is an umbrella term referring to the handwriting of the composer, Bach's own ink upon paper, in either sketches, little ideas, drafts, little phrases or nearly complete pieces, or a fair copy, a copy good enough to be performed from, or a copy good enough to be sent to a publisher. Now in Bach's day, many of his important works are copied out into fair copies. He had so few of his compositions published, printed, that is because in order to publish them in his day, he needed to have them engraved on copper plates. Someone needed to take Bach's autograph, his fair copy, and carve out this music in a reverse image in a reverse image onto copper plates so that then they could be put with ink and disseminated into the world. And the study of this stuff is called the source tradition. And the source tradition of the Art of Fugue is really these two sources, the autograph and the original print. I will call them in this episode the autograph and the revision, since we're focusing on revision, and since it could become confusing to keep saying the original print when this original print was the one that came after the autograph. But again, that means the original print, the original engraving upon copper. Now, so far in this podcast, I've covered the first four fugues, so now I will cover the early versions of these fugues. However, there is no early version of Fugue 4. It was composed after the entire autograph was assembled, and so these revisions will be limited to the first three fugues. Now, we can pretty much regard the autograph autograph of the Art of Fugue is a fair copy. Its pieces are complete, cleanly written out, no drafts, sketches, etc. But once we get to the original print, there are several noticeable differences, and that is what I want to spend this episode talking about, because we can see Bach's mind at work. We can see him locating certain passages between the autograph and the printing and saying, ah, this could be better. Ah, I will include this or exclude that. And I'm going to include a link in the description of this episode to the original print, because the original print, this engraving upon copper, is one of the most beautiful pieces of sheet music you could ever lay your eyes on. On the bottom of many of its pages are these ornately drawn flowers and symbols, jewels, and it's well worth looking at. Okay, so let's jump in. I'll be playing from the autograph, and from there we are going into what happened in revision. So let's begin with the first fugue. Nothing up until that point has been any different except for this very subtle nuance here in the bass voice, in the autograph. 
Bach writes a whole note here. And in the revision, he changes it to a half note there to allow that tenor voice to speak. So it's a very, very subtle difference you have in the autograph and in the revision. But you can hear it after all, it's very important. Okay, going on. There were two revisions there. In the autograph we have... And in the revision he changes that to some more florid writing in the outer voices. So that is, he goes from this... to this. Going on. Again, more florid writing there. In the autograph we have... And that's interesting because you have this nice conversation between the soprano and the bass. But in the revision he changes that to this. So you have that beautiful leap there of a seventh. Okay, going on. That's different. See, in the revision, he places that bass note an octave lower. So instead of, we have this. Going on. That's also very subtle in the tenor voice in the autograph we have. But in the revision, he changes it to. So going on. Nothing in this episode is different. And then when we reach there, we have two very subtle differences in the bass. In the bass, it's a half note. And the tie in this alto voice is missing, probably an oversight, but if you were to play it as it literally appears in the autograph you have. So you really have that dissonance brought out. But again, it's probably an oversight, as he revised it with the tie, obviously. That's an interesting revision there, because that, in the autograph, is... And when he revises it, he changes all the B-flats to B-natural. So we go from this sort of sound to this sound. And isn't that interesting? Right there you have a lot of stuff going on. In the soprano, this changed to. We also have these inner voices becoming more elaborate. They go from this to this. 
with the lengths lengthened and from this to this and the bass goes from these simple whole notes to these dotted halves with a pickup and then in the following whole note from this to this he's intensifying things you know he's he's making sure that this big huge pedal point moment which is coming up is more intense in the revision now after this big pedal point there are a few revisions which I won't bother mentioning so let's just go on to the end I won't bother mentioning them because they're very subtle but the ending ending has the most important revision of all. This all sounds very normal. But then it just suddenly ends and we get none of this final entrance in the tenor. We get none of that. Just after the chords we have Actually, it doesn't do that suspension there and it just sort of goes like this but that's right that's because in revision he either thought well it needs to be lengthened or the number 11 had some significance to him and he realized that there were 10 entrances and he thought there needs to be a final entrance now i think that for bach obviously the making of beautiful music will always be the supreme goal and not to make some reference to a number. But I don't think it's past him that he could have felt the need for both. As we often see in the early stages of the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, we see Bach adding on to the endings of these preludes and these fugues. And just here, I feel like he also could feel that there needed to be a final word said about this fugue. And so he adds this cadence. And perhaps he thought there could be a reference to the number 11, and hence I will put in the 11th entrance in the tenor voice there. Do I think that Bach was aware that there were 11 entrances? Yes, absolutely. Do I think that Bach went through and counted every single note in this fugue as some people have suggested? No, I can never imagine Bach sitting down and actually taking the time to count every single note in his compositions. But there are people who will violently disagree with me. There are people who have taken the time themselves to count every single note in every single piece of Bach's music, and they divide that by, you know, 1411 because these are his numbers and do all kinds of crazy things with it. No, I don't think it goes that far. I think it goes about as far as calculating golden sections and counting the numbers of entrances in the fugues, etc. But at a certain point, these people who are counting up all of the notes in Bach's compositions and dividing them by these numbers which may or may not have been significant to Bach, they're really saying, look at how clever I am and not really look at this music. Music, the making of beautiful music as his supreme goal, that is always the best place to start when considering why did Bach revise something. So that is the ending of the discussion of the revisions on the first fugue. And as we see, Bach always goes from the simple to the complicated. He always takes something that begins with one note and he turns it into two notes or he begins with something that has a simple melodic shape and he makes the shape more snake-like or something like that. Watch this, folks. Watch this, folks. Now, if you turn the page in the autograph, we get the second fugue, which is the fugue that we know as the third fugue. So Bach changed the order. Instead of this one, with the dotted rhythms, we get the inverted fugue. 
See, Bach was always toying with the order, figuring out what is the best way to spread this rhetorical masterpiece over 14 fugues. And he originally started first fugue, followed by its inversion. Now, rather than playing through this entire fugue like I did the first one, I'm just going to start where the heavy revisions begin. And they're mostly concerning the bass line. So here we go from bar 22. That is the autograph version. Now I'll play the revised version, but I miscounted. It's actually bar 23. If I were just to isolate the bass lines, we have... That is the autograph. Now in the revision, he flips the octaves on some of them. So we have. Okay, so I'll play it one more time. In the original, the autograph. And in the revision. Same notes, but he just plays with the registers. And then, in the following bars, that is the revision. In the autograph, we have See, instead of doubling that phrase, he has, early on, Now there are three more revisions which I'd like to bring your attention to in this fugue, and they come here at bar 39. Now I just played the autograph, but you'll hear that the rhythm becomes intensified in the revision. Here's the same place. You see he adds those 16th notes going from the simple to the more ornate. Okay, the next revision showcases how Bach will sort of ease his way into chromaticism. In the autograph, we have this. Okay, that is again. And now in revision, we have... So that change there has primarily to do with the alto voice, which was originally. But Bach revises it to this. You can see how it becomes more chromatic. And the final revision has to do, again, with the ending. But Bach will not add another entrance as he did in the first counterpoint. He will simply add a few more bars. This is the autograph. This is the revision. I think that there is maybe just the slightest hint 
of the reminder of the uninverted theme there between the tenor voice and the alto voice. I'll exaggerate it now. You hear that? I mean, it's not really because it's between two voices, not being sung with one voice, but it is there. Turn the page of the autograph once more, and we get the next one, which is the one that we know as number two, but it is in the third position in the autograph. That's the one with all the dotted rhythm. This one is virtually the same, except there's this one wild passage. I'll begin from bar 35. There was that passage which sounded like this. And that's the original version, but suddenly in the revised version, there's a bass line that's there. So it's as if in this original version, he just has this two-voice texture. And he thinks, ah, that's a little sparse. So in the revision. But of course, my main interest in the revisions of the Art of Fugue stem from this final revision of this fugue here, which is the third fugue in the autograph. And it's the fact that it ends on the dominant. So we have this. And that's it. I mean, it ends on the dominant. It doesn't end in D minor, and that's the key that we started in. And that's the key that all the fugues finish in. It's very strange, so we get none of this cadential counterpoint. None of that. That all comes in the revision. That last entrance there in the soprano, the whole ending in, in D. This is only in the revision. So what does that imply? The fact that Bach ended this, what was originally the third fugue in A major, well, it meant the end of a chapter. It meant that he conceived it as a set because it's supposed to sound like this in Bach's mind originally. And then... It meant go on to the next fugue. It meant that the work was conceived as a whole, sort of like a set of variations. And this is the end of a chapter. And from there, he goes on to the stretto fugues. It means that this work was to be played. This was a real instrumental work, which was to be performed, not looked at. <laughs> Because if you're flipping the page again in the autograph after this third fugue, the fugue that we see next is what we call the fifth fugue today, because there was no fourth fugue. There was no fugue that we today refer to as the fourth fugue. Bach, again, possibly with the numbers, decides when preparing the autograph for the print, for the engraving, 
Instead of an initial group of three fugues, the art of fugue will open with these four simple fugues, and hence the switching of the order of fugues two and three. See, the autograph, it goes right side up fugue, then the inversion, then right side up again, and on the dominant, and then on to the stretto fugues. It is the goal and the intention of the modern Bach scholar and Bach thinker to reflect Bach's last thoughts about the work, his latest intentions, which is why these episodes in this podcast are coming out in the order presenting the fugues as they are presented in the original print, in the revised version, as I've been calling it, which, as you may remember, are first two fugues right side up, next two fugues upside down. Many aspects, other than just the revision of the musical notes, are changed between the two different sources that we have. Uh, notably, the title page of the autograph, even though it is not written in Bach's handwriting, it is by Altnikol, his son-in-law. It's called The Art of Fugue, Fuga, F-U-G-A. In the original print, it's uh, The Art of Fugue, F-U-G-E. Uh, in the autograph, the fugues are numbered with Arabic numerals, one, two, three. In the original print, they are called contrapunctus. See, that word contrapunctus does not appear in the autograph. The canons, which I will cover shortly, are named in Greek intervals. So, hypodiapason. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but hypodiapason instead of octave or ottava, which is uh, in the original print, they use the Latinate names instead of the Greek. And then, of course, there's the order of things, which you've just seen a preview of how the order is changed in the autograph. It goes one, three, two, and then it skips fugue four, which implies also, by the way, that fugue four was one of the last fugues to be composed. It continues with this bizarre order. The fugues, as we number them today, appear in the early autograph in this order. Number one, three, two, five, nine, ten, six, seven, eight, eleven, then the canons, then the two mirror fugues, twelve and thirteen, and then we are lacking the fourteenth fugue in this initial autograph. Now that that implies that Bach extensively revised the conception of it. The entire overarching structure was rethought between the genesis of the music and the publication. And that's about all I have to say on the first three fugues and revision. It's such a wonderful opportunity, the fact that we can see into the master's mind and see the way that he critiqued his own seemingly already perfect compositions and made them even somehow better. If you want to see these revisions yourself, you should check out the Neue Bach Ausgabe. That's the new Bach edition, or as we in the business call it, the NBA. So thanks for listening. What a great day to be listening to WTF Bach. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. You can write to us. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach podcast Bach. at WTFBach.com. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. WTF at WTFBach.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you.